0: The Creative Nonfiction Podcast is sponsored by Goucher College's Master of Fine Arts and Nonfiction. The Goucher MFA is a two-year low-residency program. Online classes let you learn from anywhere, while on-campus residencies allow you to hone your craft with accomplished mentors who have Pulitzer Prizes and best-selling books to their names. The program boasts a nationwide network of students, faculty, and alumni, which has published 140 books and counting. You'll get opportunities to meet literary agents and learn the ins and outs of the publishing journey. Visit goucher.edu forward slash nonfiction to start your journey now. Take your writing to the next level and go from hopeful to published in Goucher's MFA program for nonfiction. Oh, hey, welcome to the show, CNFers, and my, 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 are you in for a treat? Susan Orlean, at Susan Orlean on Twitter, a New Yorker staff writer and the best-selling author of The Orchid Thief, Rin Tin Tin, and now her latest book, The Library Book, is out now, and it's everything you'd expect from her work, it's exceptional, Exceptional narrative journalism, and I'm super excited for you to get to hear her talk about it. But before we get to that, maybe you're new to the show. Maybe you saw that Susan was on the show and you're like, what? Let me tell you what me and the voices in my head are up to here. This is the Creative Nonfiction Podcast, the show where I speak to great artists about the craft of telling true stories, leaders in narrative journalism, memoir, documentary film, Essay, radio, podcasting. Hey, hey. Stop by so we can talk about their creative paths and how they go about the work so you can apply those tips, tricks, and routines to your own work. I'm your host, Brendan O'Mara. Hey, hey again. Amidst my at times physically grueling temp job, I somehow managed to file a feature this past week, and let me tell you, it was sheer garbage. It was a thin profile, and I somehow squeezed 3,000 words out of it. And I'm not I'm not saying this out of false modesty; like it was genuinely not good. I hate turning in work that I'm not proud of, but sometimes that happens. Deadlines happen, and you sometimes, as I've told some some people, it doesn't have to be good; it just has to be good enough. And I. Don't even know if this one was good enough. Often I rely on my central figure to provide me with more people to talk to, and I can go out from there. My central figure in this case was incredibly elusive, and once I finally was able to speak to them, I had quite literally no time to chase down other sources to make this profile really pop. It's basically a two-source profile, and I don't need to tell you that that leads to garbage. I filed it and moved on. I suggest you do the same. Anyway... Susan Orlean. You can find more about her at her website, SusanOrlean.com. And, of course, go follow her on Twitter. She's very active on Twitter and offers incredible advice and is just an entertaining follow. She came back to the show. I recommend listening to both her shows. Episode 61 was when she came and talked a lot about her origin story as a writer and running your operation like a business, like the business it is. This time around for episode 121, she dives into her methods of structure and what her latest book, a book she never thought she'd write, is all about. That sounds fun. One more sponsorship announcement. Today's podcast is also brought to you by Creative Nonfiction Magazine. For nearly 25 years, Creative Nonfiction has been fuel. For nonfiction writers and storytellers, publishing a lively blend of exceptional long and short form nonfiction narratives and interviews, as well as columns that examine the craft, style, trends, and ethics of writing true stories. In short, creative nonfiction is true stories well told. Well, I believe in that. At long last, let's do the show episode 121 with the incomparable. Susan Orlean. Now it gets old when you when you get to this this phase where it's been done, you've done the work, and now you get to to talk it up and do the circuit and really uh, celebrate it, so to speak.
1: Yeah, it doesn't get old. I mean, it's it's thrilling. It's Absolutely thrilling, and each time it's something new it's a it's a new experience, so I think it's a little like um childbirth you know <laughs> to i i think nobody no matter how many children they have, they never say, Yeah, it's kind of done it it's boring it's old <laughs> <laughs> it it just doesn't feel that way it feels new each time and and very exciting.
0: Very nice. Well, uh, I I think a really good place to start, and this is uh, a you know a tweet you sent out a, a while ago. It had something to do with fasting, but you were eating. You were still drinking coffee, and uh, you and uh, you made a really funny comment about it not you, you don't want to be seen or interacted with unless you've had your coffee. And I wonder what your your coffee ritual is uh, and how you approach that every day.
1: Um, it's, it's the start of the morning, much as the sun rises, my coffee machine gets turned on. And I've, I have a cappuccino in the morning, which is a pleasure. I have upped my intake slightly where I'll have two instead of just one, but I feel like I'm entitled (laughs) and I don't know why. I simply feel that I'm okay having two. And, um, though I will say I don't drink coffee through the rest of the day. I, if it's around, if it's offered to me, I'll have it. But I very rarely make coffee. Um, coffee, you know, once the morning has begun, I very, very rarely make another pot of coffee.
0: Yeah. The, what's appealing about it is the, the ritual around it as well. Not just the, the caffeine bump. I, mean, I, I, I favor in the summer and even into the winter, I favor the cold brew process. I love that getting that concentrate. It's really smooth and all that, but also just French press and just going through grinding the beans and boiling the water and letting it steep, you know, that whole ritual around it, I feel is just like a nice sort of warm way to warm up to the day.
1: Yeah, it, it's something that engages you without requiring a, a lot of mental effort, uh, which is a great, a, a great combination. It's nicely distracting without really requiring you to be wide awake.
0: Yeah, of course. Yeah, it's great. So, uh, yeah, I know I, I've got I've got my coffee going. I'm sure you've had your two cappuccinos by now. So uh, I have. <laughs> yeah. And there are so many. There are so many great points. I have so many passages highlighted from the library book that I wanted to like expand upon um, some of the the themes that you're talking about in the book, and also just uh, themes of of writing and how you approach the work too. And I've been really. Um, like mulling over how I wanted to, to start this, and I think maybe a good place to start is that, um, you know, there was a passage in the book where you said, like, right before learning about the library fire of the Los Angeles Public Library, you had decided you were done writing books. And of course, you know, I think you brought your son to the library, and suddenly you saw basically yourself telegraphed to your own childhood, your relationship to your parents, and then your love of books, and all of a sudden. That was kind of the spark. So why why were you – why did you feel you were done with books? And then what was that moment like when you're like, no, this is, this is the book I have to write now?
1: I spend so much time when I'm writing my books, uh, I, I end up maybe taking anywhere between three and five years on each book. It's a huge commitment. And it hangs over me while I'm working on it without any relief until I'm done. You know, it just is there and something that I'm thinking about constantly while I have it hanging over me, unfinished. So when I finished Rin Tin Tin, I thought, I just don't know if I can do this again. It's so exhausting. It's so demanding. And... will I ever find a subject that is as compelling? You know, I, I just felt like I don't need to do this. I've written a lot of books. I'm proud of them, but I'm done. And I really did believe that. And I mentioned this to a number of friends who said, okay. And I said, you know, don't let me write another book. I'm done. I don't want to do Mm -hmm. another book. It's just, simply too exhausting. When this story presented itself to me, I the fact is that I wasn't done being a writer. And writers look at the world a certain way, which is you hear about something and your impulse is, I want to write about it. I want to learn about it. And so I was still in the world with that state of mind certainly I mean that that had not changed and I thought I'll write magazine pieces I'm just not going to engage in something that's going to be a five-year project but the minute I heard about this and the minute I was having this experience of re reconnecting with libraries It was almost as if I had no choice in the matter. It just was the book I had to write. Mm. It felt like a book that had to be written. And I kept thinking, I, you know, it just was such a great story that I couldn't not write it. And I remember one friend saying to me, I thought you weren't going to write any more books. And I thought, well, that's true. I did say that. I did, you know, you're <laughs> right. I did say it, but here I am, and I can't resist this essentially. Um, and she still sort of teases me about it. But it was, it was very, it was, a, a, you know, my thought that I wasn't going to write another book was very sincere. I mean, it wasn't filled with bitterness or any sort of, unha- uh, it, not so much unhappiness as the feeling of, I just don't want to do this again. It's too exhausting for me to to dive back into something as consuming as a book.
0: It's similar to people who are serial entrepreneurs or even chefs. And it's like the ones who make it in whatever those disciplines are, it's almost like they just can't, they can't help it. So it's almost like this, Right. you said, you know, you had written off books, but it was like, but you just couldn't, the story was too good. And it just, it's been in your blood for over 30 years and it's, you just couldn't help it.
1: Exactly. And, you know, it's, I think the thing about being a writer is it's a state of mind. It's not, it's a way of, being in the world that you then turn into a, a vocation. I, I think most writers just look at the world a certain way and interact with the world in a certain way. And my, I became a writer because that is how I am in the world rather than I'm that way of being only because I'm a writer. I mean, it was definitely, uh, I think that my curiosity, my desire to answer questions about events and places and situations is, is why I became a writer rather than the other way around. Um, I didn't become curious because I, decided to be a writer. So it, it's really hard to, to stop being that person, because that's who I am. And when I'm curious about something, inevitably, my thought is, "Ooh, that's such a good story. You know, that's just kind of my, mm. my response to, to interesting things is thinking, oh, that's a great story. And oh, I want to learn about it and then tell other people about it. It's uh, it's a an impulse that feels very embedded in who I am. So this was a story where, first of all, I was moved emotionally by this reconnection with libraries and suddenly thinking, oh, my gosh, I have such profound feelings about libraries. They're very, it's just so deep in my, in my memories and in my emotions. And I really hadn't realized it. And then learning about this amazing story of the fire in LA made it feel so compelling because then there was a narrative. It wasn't it wasn't merely that i was enjoying the idea of oh i want to write about what it was like to go to the library with my mother but here's this narrative that is fascinating whether or not i had this emotional connection and the combination felt irresistible
0: the elements of sur- surprise in, in this in the story were really cool like just in the the science of like um you know stoichiometric conditions for fire and water essentially being more damaging than than fire when it came what if it, if you had to choose your disaster they would actually yeah, choose right. fire and um well, last time we spoke you were you you were talking a lot about um a story being going in with certain expectations. And if those expectations don't change somewhat, then it's probably not that interesting a story. So I wonder what your expectations might have been going into this and then what changed and surprised you and made it all the more interesting as you kept going through your reporting and research.
1: Well, this was really fascinating and um, unfolding as I was working on it in in, in almost every way. I I mean, to begin with, my, my learning the story of the fire at all was not what I was expecting. When I first thought, oh, I really want to write a book about libraries, I didn't think, oh, and this one almost burned to the ground. Um, a few things. Uh, you know, initially, I assumed Harry Peake was alive and that I would get to talk to him and find out what it was like for him to be accused of this crime. And even that, just from the beginning, to discover he had passed away, threw me. And initially I thought, well, now what do I do? He's he's not alive. I hadn't anticipated that. The conclusiveness of the investigation, or lack of conclusiveness, was also really significant and and unexpected. I you know I knew someone had been arrested. I didn't expect to learn that the that he was never indicted and then the entire story of the follow-up in terms of the city suing him and you know that was all completely unexpected. So I suddenly found myself in the middle of a story that had this very novel legal component that I hadn't expected. The the story, I think more than almost any other story, I, I was new to Los Angeles. I knew nothing about the library. So everything I learned surprised me. And everything I learned kept changing my sense of what the book was about because I really entered this with, I would say I start all of my books with very little knowledge, but in this case, it really felt like I was learning from ground zero, um, everything about, about the history of the city, about the history of the library, about libraries in general. It was, it all felt like I had to remain really nimble and able to change. You know, I originally thought there was a big fire, it was an arson, they must have arrested someone, and he must be in jail. Well, none of those turned out to be true, and the reasons for it became even more interesting.
0: There's a great passage you wrote that kind of, uh, just echoes um I maybe think of Joan Diddy in the way she wrote about or uh, writes about California too, and it's you write that uh California seemed like a promise, a flawless golden abundance in the space between the ocean and the mountains and the desert, and that was just such a lovely, lovely sense and it it just um and what made me think of that in the just in the context of what you're saying was when you kind of started this book, you were fairly new to California, so what was that? What was that like as you started to get acquainted with a new city and a new city that with this hub of a library at, you know, at its core?
1: I highly recommend writing a book about the new city you've moved to as mm. a way of getting to know it very quickly <laughs> because you know you you are forced to not only find your way around, which is kind of funny. I mean, in part, you're suddenly interviewing people all over the city and man, you know, you, you're kind of required to be, get out there, but it also meant learning the history of Los Angeles and, and the feeling my, um, my newness to the city, my, the fact that, the famous names, the people who are iconic figures in the history of the city were all strangers to me. There's been great writing about California. That's intimidating, of course. Um, I felt like I had to simply take a deep breath and um, I'm not, you know, Joan Didion grew up here. Her family has deep roots in California. She knows it as a native. So I felt that I, I had to be very uh, uh, kind of honest and authentic about the fact that I'm not from here. I was learning the city and learning the history of the city as I was writing the book and that the book doesn't present itself as with that deep kind of pioneers knowledge of the place, but instead the the sort of wonder and surprise that a newcomer can bring to it. I, I mean, I find Los Angeles amazing and there's a a certain advantage to being a newcomer when you're writing about a place, because you don't take anything for granted. You're not jaded. You don't assume that people know X, Y, and Z because you yourself are learning X, Y, and Z. So it, I, I feel like there's an advantage to it. Um, as intimidating as it is to write about a place that's been written about so much, it the advantage was all of it was fresh to me. All of it was new.
0: Yeah, there's there's probably a certain level of intimidation of of approaching any subject that's been written about a lot. I I, I often think about the countless biographies, um, like Abraham Lincoln or something. Y- and yet, there's always another angle. But there's always it's it's still filtered through the taste of that author. So, like, no matter what L.A. book that you were choosing to write, it was always going to be new and unique to the L.A. canon because it's still it's coming through your prism. So, no one else can write this type of L.A. book and library book like you can.
1: It's well, thank you, and yeah, I think that when there, you know, the the books written about California are really extraordinary, and um, there is a, just volume after volume of really brilliant books written about the history and sociology of this place, and it's a subject that keeps being returned to over and over again because. It's a fascinating place. It's also a huge place Mm. with a huge history. And I think as a writer, um, I'm always writing about subjects about which there are experts. And I'm not an expert. I don't pretend to be an expert. What I'm an expert at is exploring a new subject and talking to readers about what I've discovered. And that's my expertise, not on the topic itself. And I feel like I'm I'm comfortable acknowledging the limits of what I've learned. There there is always someone who knows more than I do about about orchids, about German shepherds, about silent films, about libraries. And I'm okay with that. I don't, I'm not competing with the experts. So in the case of writing about California, there are historians, there are um, people who have made this their life's work to write about California. I'm, it was important for me to remind myself that that was not that I was not competing with them, that I was telling this story through my perspective and that, that, that was legitimate.
0: Yeah. And that's the kind of the beauty of what, what you do and what the, the trade of this kind of narrative journalism can, can provide is that you can take that deep dive and go find the experts talk to them, learn it, then wash your hands of it. And then maybe write a long article on like the number two pencil or something.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think that there's, um, there's a role to be played by somebody who is a storyteller who goes, who translates um, the expertise into narrative and, and, And that it's very important to remember, I mean, and I'm saying this as a pep talk to myself, Mm -hmm. that, um, you know, you often enter into those worlds and feel really daunted by the fact that there are people who know it so well. But that's not my job is to know it in a holistic way and to craft a story that's compelling and engaging for a general reader, uh, n- not that it doesn't have to have the depth of expertise, but that I am not suddenly, I mean, at this point, I do know a lot about libraries, and I do know a lot about the history of Los Angeles, but it, it's my job is to be the storyteller, and that's that's my expertise. Um, and knowing how to get the facts and organize them.
0: That's, uh, that that segues perfectly into what I want to ask you next. And, and, um, with respect to, to this book, how did you, what were you struggling with? And, uh, how did you deal with that ugly grind? And this could apply to any book, but the, but this one in particular that sort of ugly grind in the middle of the draft when i as i like to say you're you're too far away to turn back home and you're you're in the middle of the ocean you can see the lighthouse out there but it's really far away so like how <laughs> how, how, did, how did you uh muscle through that and deal with that uh that middle part of the the drafting process
1: uh, oh you're giving me ptsd because it's <laughs> like that that's the that's the worst part Um, I love writing leads, so I always, in the beginning, feel like, whoa, wow, this is fun. And when you've gotten through to the point where you can truly see the the finish line, that's really energizing. But you're very correct in calling it the ugly grind, because in that middle, um, and I think this is where a lot of books really fall apart in the middle you you can feel f- like you're floundering I mean you're it's like being in the lake in the very middle of the lake you're not near the shoreline and you're not near the raft that's floating a uh, hundred yards away you're you're really in it and that's where a lot of books get very boring and get just flabby mm-hmm. I I had a one great advantage is that I structured this book so that I was moving among three timelines. So I never felt that I was sinking deep into that dark, mucky middle that felt, you know, and for a reader, you get into the middle of a book and sometimes you feel it as the reader. All right, this has been going on for a while and now what? And um, it's that sense of you need momentum in the middle uh, or, that feels really fresh. Otherwise, it does feel for the reader and the writer like, whoa, man, where where have I been and where am I going? And I sure better get there in a hurry. I think that switching um, among these multiple timelines meant that it, it never sucked down into that that muddy hole. Um, I could switch up, and in particular because I was I had the timeline of the present day library that's very anecdotal and very um, scenic and almost filmic. Um, I went and spent time in every department in the library and each of those sections is, um, you know, they're very lively, they're funny, they're, they feel very immediate. And so as I, you know, I'm sinking deeper and deeper into that middle of the book, and I'm, you know, once in a while, I would think, geez, I'm just still in 1950. And I, you know, I've got to get all the way to 2018 in this timeline and then i think oh well maybe it's time now to switch back to another one of these small chapters set in the present day and it helped both as a writing exercise those chapters were much more fun to write because it was really like writing a screenplay almost and you know they're very descriptive and they're they've got a lot of dialogue and it, I felt that for a reader, it was a relief to emerge out of the, the deeper history into the present day. How
0: did you map out your, your manuscript in a sense so you could look at the proportionality of your timelines and make sure one didn't get too heavy at a certain section and it did feel in proportion over the course of the whole book?
1: And that was very important to me because, um, you know, I didn't want it to seem sort of randomly scattered. Uh, I wanted it to feel rhythmic that you would move in and out of these different time frames. I, I used um, you know, in, in a way, some of that is very mechanical. I have all of my notes on five by seven index cards and I literally laid them out so I could see oh this section is this has 30 cards and the section next to it only has 5 cards well that's too much I need to break up the 30 cards um so that it doesn't go on for too long in this deep history in say the early 1900s I, I need to break that chapter up and move into the present day instead so i was really pacing it out with my index cards to see literally that that there was a balance from one section to the other
0: that's uh, that's really really cool uh, are they are they color coded in any way
1: Uh, they are, well, I tried to do color coding a little bit, but it, then it gets confusing because I can't remember what the color stood for. Mm -hmm. And the only thing that worked for me was on this, um, that I used red for any cards that were specifically related to the story of the fire. And that I could remember, but none of the other colors had any real – They I couldn't remember what they were for, so I stopped using them, and I simply um, – I do use different colors of, of Sharpie um, just so that it doesn't – just because I think if you have five, 500 cards that are all written with black pen – it's um, harder to remember, oh, I'm looking for that card that had such and such a phrase on it. If you write in different colors, you have a little bit of a visual memory and you think, oh yeah, it was green. It was written in green. And then you can kind of look through the cards more quickly. Um, And they're all numbered. Mm -hmm. But uh, I, I couldn't, what I ended up doing is, as they began making sense to me thematically, I would write on the top of the card what theme that card related to, whether it was the fire, whether it was present day, whether it was um, history of the LA library itself, whether it was, you know, what time frame it referred to, so that. They did have titles that helped me keep them organized.
0: Mm. And are you uh, taping these to your wall, or do you have a big cork board for them so you can see it all mapped out?
1: Well, I worked in a couple of different places while I was writing. When I was working in my office at my house, I had a big giant cork board, and I hung whatever I was, whatever section I was working on, I hung up. But I. I didn't have quite enough space to, oh, no, that's not true. I first organized them all on the cork board. Then I took them down and rubber banded them to, in their different groups. And then I would pin up whichever chapter I was working on. I'd pin those cards up on the corkboard, board and then take them down when I was ready to start the next section and pin that one up instead. When I, I spent a certain amount of time writing the book at my house in New York, and we have a gigantic dining room table, every writer's dream, It was mm-hmm. it's just a huge, huge, huge table. And I was able to spread out a lot of my notes on the table and have them all out at once, which was really a pleasure. Not all of them, because I, I simply had too many cards, but I... I was able to have a large number spread out in front of me and I would have the ones I was working on close to me and then the other ones in the more in the periphery, but it was a kind of a dream to have such a big table to work on.
0: Oh, that's, that's really cool. I, I love, I love digging into like this kind of structure, how it maps out. Cause like when I was talking to, earl swift a couple of weeks ago about his latest book he, he was just saying like a lot of this is is engineering you know it's yeah. it's structure it's process and the inspiration often can come as you're writing but you really do have to be sort of systematic about laying these things out and seeing cards and being able to move them around john mcphee uses index cards as has for his whole career and so you get a sense of that it is, it's manageable, and there is a blueprint behind it. And then you remove the scaffolding at the end, and hopefully the reader doesn't see it, but it, but it is there for you during the process.
1: Absolutely, I think that it, it doesn't take away from the art to say that there's a lot of craft involved and a lot of mechanics involved. You don't just sit down and say, "Okay, I'm starting my book," and start writing. Um, And I think many people, uh, I mean, to me, structure is the biggest challenge, both in a piece of writing that's, say, magazine length, and definitely in the case of a book, structure is what you rise and fall on. It's very hard to... I, I can't imagine writing without developing a structure that helps you figure out where the information goes and when and how. So it it's a, a comfort to me to be grappling with the mechanical kind of moving cards around. Uh, and then once I have that structure It feels that I can write, I can be eloquent more easily when I know that I've got this skeleton and the infrastructure of the book there for me. It's almost liberating to think, well, I know where I'm going. Now I can just enjoy the luxurious part, which is the writing the writing of beautiful sentences Um, and you know where those sentences go, which is um, that, that's what makes the writing of it fun to do. You, you know where they go, you know what they're heading to and you can relax within it. It's almost like being on a road trip with a destination and you have a map and then you can look out and enjoy the scenery. If you're driving aimlessly and you're not exactly sure where you're going, I think it's very hard to to look out the window and, and comment on the beauty of what you're passing because you're distracted trying to think, where am I going?
0: Yeah. How long can you write in a, in a given day without getting tired?
1: I would say, uh, well, when I was really on a roll, I was writing from morning, you know, starting at 10 a.m. till 10 at night. Oh, but wow. that's an unusual thing. I had nothing distracting me, nothing. and and I was really energized and I felt like, wow, I know where I'm going. And I was able to really, truly do 12 hours, but that's unusual. I think it's exhausting to write for more than, I think eight is kind of exhausting. This was a sort of unusual time where I felt really like I understood my structure and I could just, Right, I would say t- a typical day six hours is a, is a quite a, a significant amount of time. I tend to look at word count more than hours. Um, you know, I'm always aiming to do a thousand words a day, and after six hours, I'm pretty beat.
0: Yeah. You write in the book, too, that uh, libraries are an easy place if you want to um, desire to be invisible, which, uh, which I like, because any time I go to the library, it is kind of nice just to kind of disappear into your own little cocoon, and um, which, which is great, but often, sometimes as a writer, as you well know, that you spend a lot of time alone, and it can get lonely, and if you're by yourself, often the those voices will creep in your head, those self-doubt voices. And as someone who's done this for a long time, uh, how do you fight off loneliness and self-doubt when you're in the throes of this process, when you're so often on your own?
1: I think it's really difficult. Um, You know, and I rely on um, my family and friends just as a, a kind of antidote to that time alone it's, I'm not sure that you can fight it off. I think it's very lonely to be sitting and writing. It's not a collaborative process. And while you can give work to people to read, nobody can write it for you and nobody can write it with you exactly. So there's a sort of solitariness that is necessary. And it can feel very, very lonely. I think what's really important is that when you're not in front of the computer, that you, you shake off that sense of solitude and, and make sure that you're around human beings, because otherwise, you can get really lost in your own head. I mean, one thing that I liked was, um, I, I work at home, and there are times when I really miss just being able to walk out and see other people and chat for five minutes, um, and for me, the equivalent of that would be to jump on social media and, and and chat for a few minutes and then go back to my work, and I know that that seems absurd, that social media could keep you from feeling lonely, but it it is almost like being in an office and wandering out of your office just to sort of shoot the breeze for 10 minutes and then go back into your office and work again. So I certainly, many of my breaks would be to jump on Twitter or Facebook for 10 minutes and kind of interact with, with other people and then go back to my work.
0: Yeah that that connection is is so is so key and community too just having that having that network and and also there's a, a you know a part in the book where you know you're of course this was uh, a book about the library in LA but in in so many ways it was uh, a connection of you solidifying a certain uh, memory and almost a, a dedication to your mom in a sense. And you were yeah. losing your mom in the process of this book. And um, how, in, how important was this book and how much was it motivated by your mother?
1: You know, it was so wrapped up in my memories of her and, and realizing how how much those trips together had meant as a, as a sort of staple of my childhood and as some of the happiest moments that I spent with her. And I think now that I look back, I certainly would never have imagined that she would pass away before the book came out. I mean, it was unexpected. I mean, she was old, but, when she passed away, it turned out, it was very fast. Yeah. Um. So it, it was, it, it, it couldn't be separated from what, I mean, this book can't be separated from what I was going through in my personal life in terms of losing my mom. And, and, and it was also strangely um, related. Libraries are repositories of memories. Mm-hmm. I mean, stories, memories, um, knowledge. And as my mom um, really descended into dementia and was losing her memory, it was. I think it really affected me, and it made me think so much about memory and about preserving stories and preserving memory, which is really the role of libraries. I don't think I thought of it overtly, but when I sat down to write, that idea of, the, of saving a memory for posterity struck me very deeply, and I know that's why.
0: Yeah, you write also that uh, the idea of being forgotten is terrifying. Not that I personally will be forgotten, but that we are all doomed to be forgotten. That the sum of life is ultimately nothing. That we experience joy and disappointment and aches and delights and loss. Make our little mark on the world and then we vanish and the mark is erased. And it is as if we never existed. And if you gaze into that bleakness even for a moment, the sum of life becomes null and void. Because if nothing lasts... Nothing matters. And that's, that's such a wonderful passage. And, and, it, and it is, on its surface, kind of grim. And how did you, like, when you write something like that, how do you pull yourself back out of it so you do see see the light out of that darkness?
1: Well, and that was um, probably the the sum and total of that feeling of deep, sadness that, you know, as I began feeling that, you know, when someone dies, this feeling of they're just gone, they're gone. And all the memories they have are gone. And all your experiences with them seem to amount to nothing. And of course, that's not true. It does amount to something. it amounts to the character of who you are. And I think that it made me begin to feel that we do change the world by being in it. And not everybody is a writer, of course, and not everybody has a story in a book that sits in the library that will be there forever. But it was realizing that, well, we all change the world, that everybody inflects the the way life proceeds and you know even if you go back and watch something like uh, It's a Wonderful Life and there there are these two realities one in which uh, George lives and one in which he he doesn't and the imagined world in which he jumps off the bridge and all of the things that he affected in his life change. I mean, I think there's a truth to that, that that it's important to remember. And that was really what made me feel that yes, all efforts, all gestures do matter, and it's not for nothing. And whether you write a book or whether it's simply that you um, turn a corner at some point in your life that makes a difference and, you know, it's the butterfly flapping its wings in, uh Brazil that, you know, sets off a nuclear bomb in Russia or whatever that, <laughs> that, that great kind of meme is, um, and you know, it was a sad time for me. I mean, losing seeing my mother decline and then her death was made writing this book probably has a little more melancholy than it would have otherwise.
0: Yeah, and what you were alluding to also that libraries are these these archival places that do preserve memory. So, and yeah, in a sense this was this was, you know, your attempt at preserving something if not for everybody else, at least for for yourself as the the one chained to to the memories and you are the the library of your experiences with, you know, your family and your mother.
1: Yeah. Well, it was yes. Yeah. I um I assume that Part of the reason that I started writing the book was unconsciously motivated by feeling that I was recapturing, I was giving myself permission to think about all of those wonderful trips that we took together to the library. So it it was like giving myself permission to just sort of savor those memories and, for me, savoring a memory inevitably leads to writing something mm-hmm. and and the this strange marvelous uh, unexpected story of of the library fire made that feel even more um, necessary really to write this book yeah
0: and you wrote a you wrote a great uh tweet not too long ago that was uh, I was favoriting a bunch because there were some really great talking points <laughs> and it was like 90 it's a very sort of chicken egg question this one uh you know like 90% of writing is having the confidence to believe in your own voice and in the fact that you have something to say
1: mm-hmm.
0: what do you think comes first or what's most important having something to say or having the voice to convey said said things <laughs>
1: Ah, Well, I think that what comes first is the confidence, this this sense that you – I mean, it sounds very corny to say, but that you you kind of own this position of being a, a storyteller, of being able to say, everyone listen for a minute, I've got a great story to tell. And that requires a sense of confidence that doesn't come that easily. Once that confidence is there, once you feel that you've acknowledged yourself as a, a teller of stories and uh, and someone who is worth listening to, the voice, to me, ultimately comes out of – it's a very natural thing. It's not something that you construct. It's your voice. It's uh, – the the way you, I mean we all know how to talk everybody knows how to talk everyone knows everyone has a way of describing their life and telling stories um, the confidence really then fills you with the 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 capacity to just channel that really natural voice that you already have. I, I don't believe it's something that you construct. I think really it's simply unlocking your ability to talk na- in a natural way about things you've learned or care about or want to share with other people.
0: And this being your seventh book, and you've also written countless long profiles and features. Um, with, this, with this book in particular, what, what do you find that you're still learning and still improving at it with the craft of writing and reporting and, and putting together these true stories?
1: Well, I feel like I'm definitely always learning about structure, always. And part of that is because every book is different. So every book um, or even every article begins, you have to create structure from from zero. It's like you can't use the same blueprint over and over and over again. So I feel like I'm getting better at structure, but it's the thing that I'll never stop wanting to learn and to experiment with and feel like I'm more capable of doing well. Um, I'm, I feel like I'm, I've also learned to be a little bit, um, I've learned how to slow down Mm. and I feel like I, Uh, my, my natural instinct is to compress everything and to rush because I'm afraid I'll lose people's interests. And I've been working hard at slowing down, at getting the pacing to feeling a little more control over the pacing of the story and not rushing through and not feeling so compelled to have everything move at a crazy, rapid pace, um, so I'm you know I'm but I feel like wow i have I'm all I have so much to still learn, and every new project is a there's a new I mean, you can take the lessons you learn and apply them in each new story. But every new story, you have a new set of facts. You have a new set of circumstances, a new narrative. So you kind of have to learn all over again each time. Mm -hmm. Um, And, I mean, that's part of what makes it very interesting. But it really means that the lessons learned help. But each time, you're starting a little bit from scratch a little bit from okay I'm starting a new jigsaw puzzle here are all the parts uh, I've learned from doing other puzzles that it's good to start on the edges because that's easy and work inward and organize things by color but it's a new puzzle and it all the parts are different shapes from the puzzle I just did so I'm gonna have to use some real new fresh eyes on this to figure out how to make it work.
0: And you, you wrote in the book that you were done writing books. (laughs) Will you write another one?
1: Oh, that's a tough question. Well, I'm in that glow, uh, right now of thinking, Oh God, it's so wonderful to write books. (laughs) I'm going to, I should do another one, but I'm a million miles from, uh having any sense of what that might be and and when it would be and how it would be. So for the moment, I'll just leave it as an open question.
0: <laughs> well uh, your your latest book is uh it's a it's a treasure. It, it's everything we've come to expect from a, a Susan Orlean uh story. It's just it expands everything that you thought you knew about something into uh something compelling and and wonderful and engaging so i just want to thank you for the work and thank you for coming back on the show to talk about it in your process thanks so much well, susan uh,
1: thank you and i'm i am really thrilled to be on the show and i'm so honored um by your thoughts about about the book it really makes me feel great so thank you
0: i'll tell you what she needs 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 keep writing books am I right if nothing else I need the excuse to keep speaking with Susan again she's at Susan Orlean on Twitter and you can find more about her and her work at SusanOrlean.com thanks again to our sponsors Goucher Colleges MFA and Nonfiction and Creative Nonfiction Magazine for the support big uh, fist bumps to that be sure speaking of fist bumps to give me one over on Twitter at Brendan O'Meara and at CNF Pod, you can like the Facebook page, the Creative Nonfiction Podcast, or at CNF Pod Host on Facebook too, if that's where you spend your time. And if you have questions, feel free to reach out. Maybe I can help. Also, if you dig the show, consider sharing it with a CNF and buddy. Or uh, consider writing a short review over on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or whatever the hell they call themselves these days. If you head over to hey, hey, not only will you find show notes for the podcast. I'm sorry, I just swallowed in the microphone. That's gross. I'll edit that out. But you will also be able to sign up for my monthly newsletter where I send out reading recommendations and other CNF and goodies. If you'd enjoy getting something tasty in your inbox from me on the first of the month, head over to the site. Once a month, no spam, can't beat it. I'm gassed, friends. Like, rung out and gassed. I'm coming off a, a night shift work, folks. I worked 5 p.m. to 4 a.m., so I'm a bit loopy and gassed. I hope you have a great week. Go Sox! And remember, if you can't do interview, see ya.